being here with us. That is Edge Journey and Collision. Glad y'all are here, and uh, we hope the service is a blessing to you, and um, that you'll give ear to the Word of God in just a moment. Um, speaking of our uh, Edge Collision and Journey group, uh, there is a get-together for you guys. It's coming Friday night at uh, Aaron and Brittany's house at uh, 6 o'clock till 10 o'clock. So all of you remember that and uh, invite somebody out with you. Did all of y'all get that? All the Edge Journey Collision people, y'all get that? All right. Uh, that will be at the Durand household Friday night at 6. So remember that announcement. And uh, y'all have a good time. Enjoy it while you can. Before you know it, you'll be 60 years old, and you'll spend Friday nights at home by yourself. So uh, y'all take advantage of it <laughs> while you can. Thank the Lord. It's great to see you. Those of you joining us on live stream, welcome. And uh, we're glad to have you with us tonight in the house of the Lord. And uh, do remember this coming Sunday, it's going to be a blast. And uh, we're going to have a great time for our kids. I want to encourage all of our parents and grandparents this is an entertainment. It's helped to help them, our kids, connect with God. So it is time for altar service. We anticipate seeing parents. If you, your kids don't want you praying with them, go pray with somebody else's. I'll never forget when Casey was praying for the Holy Ghost at youth camp when she was a kid. She had her hands up and doing the... And tears just streaming. And she heard her mother's voice in her ear. Casey, come on, you can do it. Let the Lord have his way. And she stopped and turned and said, Would you go pray with somebody else? <laughs> so it's a true story. Say true story. So if your kids don't want you praying with them, go pray with somebody's kids that don't mind. <laughs> That's all I can say. It might take you two or three to find you one, but uh, anyway, you get the point. So I'm going to have a great time this coming Sunday. And uh, so let the Lord have his way. Thank the Lord. I want to read one verse of scripture tonight to jump into our Bible study. I've come with uh, a lot of material out of, to take out of such a short scripture reading that will be our text tonight. Exodus chapter 20 verse 13, one of the Ten Commandments. God just simply said, thou shalt not kill. I want to speak to you for a little while tonight, just simply value the individual, is what God is trying to say. You put value, you place value on the individual. Let me explain the Ten Commandments here. For Somebody said, that's Old Testament, does it still apply? What you have to understand about, it's actually the first five books of the Old Testament, even though the law wasn't introduced until Exodus. But... To go along with that, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is the books of the law. It's called the Pentateuch. It's called the Torah. Uh, it's the first five books, of, and that's the Bible that the Jews use today. That's, to them, the inspired Word of God. And um, <clears throat> in it is the law of Moses, and that's what was practiced all throughout the, the Old Testament and was the New Testament until the church was established in Acts chapter 2. The law of Moses can be divided in three parts. There's moral law, moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. 
The ceremonial law was done away with. That sacrificing animals and all that kind of stuff, that was done away with and replaced in the New Testament by the fivefold ministry. The civil law was still carried over as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But it was also in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established, God adding a dimension of mercy and grace to that. That was a civil law, and and even in our Judeo-Christian America, what's left of it, uh, that is still practiced in the court of law today, that if you have two witnesses against you, then you plead the mercy of the court. But then there's the moral law of God, which is essentially, not limited to, but essentially the Ten Commandments. That was never done away with. This is the heart of God. This is... This is God when you read the Ten Commandments. It's how he feels. It's how he thinks. And these are parameters that he set around all of humanity for humanity to live in, abide by, etc. They're not options. They're not if you think about it and think it's a good idea. They're commandments. This is what you do. Or, as it's applicable, this is what you do not do. And it's parameters not because God is harsh, but it's parameters to keep us safe and secure. It's to keep society on the right path and with God focused. So as I pointed out a couple of Wednesday nights ago, the first four of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship with God. The last six has to do with our relationship with one another. And uh, so tonight we're in the midst of the commandments that have to do with our relationship with one another. Last, the last two Wednesday nights we talked about honor your father and mother and uh, spent very in-depth Bible study on that, even though we did not even exhaust the subject at that time. So tonight, the second commandment, having to do with our relationship with one another, beyond honor your father and mother, is thou shalt not kill. And what God is saying here is that every individual has value to him, whether you think they do or not. Want everybody to get your head around that. Ex-spouses. God still loves them, whether you do or not. Has everybody got your head around that? Okay, it's value to the individual. All right, let's begin. By the time the average North American child has reached the sixth grade, they've already witnessed over 8,000 murders and watched 100,000 acts of violence on television. <clears throat> More kids die from violence than from illness in North America. Nearly 2 million North Americans will become violent crime victims this year. Every 20 seconds in United States and Canada, every 20 seconds, someone is beaten, stabbed, shot, robbed, raped, or killed. But some of you are probably thinking, we can skip this commandment, we don't have this issue Probably with most of us here tonight, the urge to murder somebody doesn't happen very often except in traffic. So it's not like we have too many hit men in the church that we have to address tonight. But Clarence Darrow once said, I haven't killed anybody, but I have read the whole, a whole lot of obituaries with glee. I didn't kill them, but I am so glad they're gone, that kind of mentality. I can hear laughter rippling throughout somebody's... I, I might need to stop on this point for a little while. We're, we were too excited about that. The Sixth Commandment seems like it should be quite straightforward, but actually it's the most often misunderstood, misapplied, and misinterpreted of the whole ten. 
In its basic form, this commandment states that no one but God has the right to take the life of an innocent human being. God creates and sustains man, and he alone has the right to number man's days or determine when a person should die. But before we look at what this commandment does teach, I'd like for us to take a moment and look at what it does not teach. First of all, it does not prohibit the killing of animals. The Bible is very clear about the difference between human life and animal life. And many times God commanded that animals be sacrificed, and he is not contradicting himself in this commandment. He said in Genesis chapter 9, after the covenant he made with mankind with a flood, he said, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as a green herb have I given you all things. So you don't have to be a vegetarian unless you want to be. It's not commanded in the Bible. It's okay to eat animals for meat. Hallelujah. Stabs, here I come. I do have a personal conviction as pastor, personal conviction about killing animals for sport. If you're going to eat it, fine, but don't waste it. Uh, Just go shoot birds somewhere just to kill them for the fun of it. Uh, I have, per- have a personal issue with that. Number two, this commandment does not prohibit capital punishment. I know our culture does not agree with that, but we're going to stick with Scripture. Many times in Scripture, God commands capital punishment. And to maintain order in our society, He has allowed human governments to enforce the law and punish wrongdoers. Leviticus twenty four seventeen says, He that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. Romans thirteen four for he is a minister of God to thee for good, but if thou that do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. The Hebrew phrase of the sixth commandment means no wrongful killing. It teaches that we must not take a judicially innocent life, And it is in accordance with biblical principle that an accused person is innocent until proven guilty. The Bible does teach a court of law and not the vigilante. God wants justice in his world and he also demands swift justice. And our system of appeals in America today has made a mockery of that. When U.S. President William McKinley was assassinated, his killer was caught, convicted, and executed in 53 days. Do you think that would happen today? Probably not. Ted Bundy... After the crime spree he went on in in Florida and other states was executed after killing so many women. It was 11 years after the crime. U.S. taxpayers paid his room and board all those years so he could appeal. That's not justice. Some people say, I don't think capital punishment really deters criminals. It deters the one who committed it. It deters the one who committed the crime. He's not going to rape or murder anyone anymore. So why not just give them a life sentence, people say, and that's what's popular in our culture today because a criminal given a life sentence for murder in North America is now only in prison for an average of eight years. It's not a life sentence anymore. When Oliver Wendell Holmes said, justice delayed is justice denied. The Bible said, thou shalt not kill. Neither does this commandment prohibit going to war. God sent his people to war many times throughout the word of God, and the word teaches us that There are some things worth fighting for and even dying for. It is right to fight in order to preserve freedom, to defend innocent people, and to stop the spread of evil. The wise man said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 8, There is a time to love, and there's a time to hate, and there's a time of war, and there's a time of peace. 
Notice the screen. German Protestant minister Martin Niemöller said this about the Nazis in Germany a number of years ago. When Hitler attacked the Jews, I was not a Jew, therefore I was not concerned. And when Hitler attacked the Catholics, I was not Catholic, and therefore I was not concerned. And when Hitler attacked the unions and the industrialists, I was not a member of the unions, and I was not concerned. Then Hitler attacked me and the Protestant church, and there was no one left to be concerned. You listen to me, Grace Church. Everybody in this building, if you're old enough to vote, you have a a responsibility and accountability to go to the election poll this November and cast your vote. You may have to hold your nose. It's kind of like eating a plate of carrots and English peas. You may have to hold your nose to hit that that cast your vote button, but we still have a responsibility and obligation to do it. We're the last buffer between the agenda of our culture and our country. The church is the last standing bastion. So let's get into our Bible study tonight, respecting the individual. There's five ways that God esteems the the individual. This This is how God looks at it. What does a commandment, do not murder, have to do with my family? I think this doesn't apply to you tonight. It will at the end, and that's what I'm, I'm going to be in a little bit of a hurry to get to the end of it. Well, the very first murder happened in a family when Cain killed his brother Abel, and there was no law in place at that time, so he lived. In fact, today's most violent crimes and murders are committed by one family member against another. But the Sixth Commandment has a much wider view than just the act of murder and includes any attitude or action. It includes any attitude or action that leads society in the direction of murder. God is saying, you do not kill because I value every individual on this planet. So there's five applications that I'll make tonight to the Sixth Commandment. First of all, God says no to murder. The most obvious meaning of this commandment is that we're not to kill another person. The prohibition against murder appears in all five books of the Torah, the five books of the Pentateuch, the five books of the law. It's in there in all five books. In fact, it's the only of one of the Ten Commandments that is repeated in all five books. So I think God is serious about the commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill. We may believe that murder is wrong because society says so, but watch this. Watch. Everybody listen. If you believe that, then you would have to respect that in Nazi Germany and much of Eastern Europe because it was acceptable under Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime to kill Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and the severely retarded and any other group deemed inferior. Hitler came to power through democratic process and had the support of the people that kept him in power. German society said murder was acceptable. What do you think? Should murder be approved by society or by the scripture? Today, there are societies where it is acceptable to murder certain ethnic groups. People of an opposite race or an opposing race or of a different race. This happened in Bosnia. It's happened in Iraq, Ethiopia, Russia, and other countries. Their society said it was acceptable to murder. The fact that something is approved of by society does not make it objectively right. Murder is not wrong because society said so. It's because God said so. The Bible said in Genesis 9 again, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, for in the image of God made he man. The only thing that keeps the North American murder rate down, listen to pastor tonight. 
The only thing that really keeps the North American murder rate down is the increase in the prison population quadrupled in the last 25 years. And the modern medical technology. A wound that would have killed 9 out of 10 soldiers during World War II, 9 out of 10 would survive that wound today just because of medical technology. By a conservative estimate, if we had a 1940-level medical technology today, our murder rate alone would be 10 times higher. But because medical advancement can save people, even of gunshot wounds and stab wounds and what have you, it reduces the murder rate. But murder was the intent. So we must continuously and consistently guard our families against the movie mentality that devalues human life. About 350 characters appear each night on primetime television in America, with an average of seven of them murdered. If this rate was reality, then in two months, everyone in North America would be killed, and the last one left could turn off the TV. Human life is cheap in Hollywood. It's cheap in the movie industry. David Grossman is a military psychologist who coined the term killology for the study of the methods and psychological effects of training army recruits to circumvent their natural inhibition to killing fellow human beings. Except in sociopaths, killing requires training because there's a built-in aversion in most species to killing one's own kind. So Grossman states unequivocally that the same tactics used in training soldiers are at work in our media. Every time a child sees a violent movie or plays a violent interactive video game, he is learning the exact same conditioning reflex skills as a soldier or police officer in training. The Journal of the American Medical Association has published a definitive study on the impact of television violence. Their statistics show that in every nation, region, or city where television has been introduced, there was an immediate explosion of violence on the playground and school. And within 15 years, there was a doubling of the murder rate. Why 15 years? That's how long it takes for a desensitized 3- to 5-year-old to become 18- to 20-years-old what is called prime crime age. Rachel Scott, who was a Columbine victim, wrote this poem just days before her murder. She said, I'm drowning in my own lake of despair. I'm choking. This is a high school student. I'm choking. My hands wrapped around my neck. I'm dying. Quickly, my soul leaves. Slowly, my body withers. It isn't suicide. I consider it homicide. The world you have created has led to my death. An interesting piece of poetry in light of what happened to her at such a young age. The second meaning of our scripture text is that God says no to suicide. On average, well, let me say this. When the Bible says thou shalt not kill, God says no to suicide. When he says thou shalt not kill, that includes yourself. Somebody asked me one time, can I repent and ask God to forgive me of my sins and then kill myself and go to heaven? I said, no, because you'll commit one more. It'll keep you out. And then you're dead and you can't repent of it. On average, one suicide occurs every 16 minutes. Suicide is the 11th leading cause of death for all Americans. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for young people aged 15 through 24 The number one killer is accidents. Number two is homicide. Number three is suicide. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for 24 through 34-year-olds. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among college students. 
Some people think it's my life and I have a right to live it and end it as I want, but the Bible disagrees with that. I also am very sad to say that I just learned yesterday that two of our UPC pastors committed suicide this year. In Job chapter 14, verse 5, the Bible said, Seeing his days are determined, the number of months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. The Bible said, None of us lives to himself and no man dies to himself in Romans 14, 7. So our bodies, listen very carefully, our bodies are not ours to do with as we wish. As our society teaches, God decides the number of days that we're going to live. He doesn't want us to try and short-circuit our lifespan. I'm glad our young people are in here tonight. Listen, Pastor. Suicidal behaviors are also prohibited by the Sixth Commandment when it comes to promiscuous sex, especially in an age of AIDS and STDs that they don't even know how to cure. When you choose that path... It can be considered a form of suicide because you know it can take your life. In addition to that, there's drunk driving, drug abuse, overeating, and not taking care of your health. The Bible said, thou shalt not kill. That includes yourself. Most of us at different times have felt enough despair to wonder, is my life worth living? I've been there as a teenager. I had a gun pressed to my temple one time. If you've ever considered suicide, remember that there is hope. And that God values your life, even when you don't. God values your life. You know, along the coast, you can watch the tide. And when it goes out, it always comes back in, does it not? The tide may be out in your life right now. And when the tide's out, the beach is ugly. But wait for a while, it'll come back in. The sun always shines after the darkness. Let me hurry on. The third thing that... Our scripture text teaches God says no to mercy killing. This isn't popular in our culture today, and I want everybody to understand that, but I'm staying with scripture. I still believe the Bible, regardless of what the, our culture says. The technical term for mercy killing is euthanasia. It means to cause the death of someone because of deformity, old age, or an incurable disease, and it does not refer to allowing death to occur naturally by removing artificial life support. Mercy killing is currently receiving a great deal of favorable press in North America. I've heard it debated back and forth, but the last that I heard, and as far as I know, it's even included in Obamacare, the American Affordable Care Act, whatever they call it. It's a part of that as well. Taxpayer dollars will go towards that. But mercy killing is currently receiving a great deal of favorable press in North America. It was introduced a number of years ago by a Michigan doctor named Jack Kevorkian. Anybody remember him? He coined the phrase obitiatry, obitiatry. It has to do with the obituary, killing somebody, obitiatry. To describe his practice of physician-assisted suicide, Dr. Death, as he was called, left so many bodies in motel rooms that the motel association complained about the cost of cleaning up after his visits. He finally went too far, and I remember it. It's been years ago, but I do remember it. He went too far by allowing one of his assisted suicides to be filmed and aired on U.S. television. As a result, he was convicted of second-degree murder by Michigan court and sentenced to 10 to 25 years in prison. However, 55% of Americans believe that the jury should have never convicted Kevorkian for that. If the current trend towards legalizing assisted suicide continues, he'll probably become a martyr for the cause. 
Diane Gulbertson of USA Today said, If Kevorkian's type of killer medicine becomes accepted, what horrors the future could hold? The progression is obvious. From assisted death to suggesting death to insisting on death. An unbelievable scenario? Not really. What most North Americans do not realize is that there's another country on our planet has run a full gamut when it comes to euthanasia. Mercy killing has been practiced in Holland for the past 40 plus years. The New England Journal of Medicine says that more than 1 in 42 deaths in the country of Holland were assisted suicides. Even more alarming is 1 in 4 doctors admits to killing patients without the patient's request or consent. Almost 80% of Dutch physicians now have had experience with euthanasia. Those who do kill often report nightmares and those kind of things, night sweats and all that afterwards. Why? Because they're taking on a responsibility that God never intended for them to have. That's God's business. And only God has a right to determine when I should stop living. One translation of Job chapter 12 verse 10 says, It is God who directs the lives of his creatures. Every man's life is in his power. Now this is going to get real sticky. As I go to my next point, I want to make a blanket statement here tonight, and I mean it with all of my heart. If there's anybody that is a victim to all of this, you can put it under the blood, and you can leave it there. God is faithful and just to forgive sin to those who ask him. If any of this has impacted or affected your life in any way, you have an advocate with the Father. Yes, you do. But God says no to abortion. Babies that were born premature, there are several here tonight. One that I know of that's a wonderful, wonderful person was born premature and lived. It has brought so much happiness not only to his parents but to his church. Imagine if they had been aborted. This year on planet Earth, there will be over 205 million children aborted. Who knows what gifting and talent and knowledge knowledge level all of those kids had that could contribute to society. The lifetime average in our world is now one abortion per woman worldwide. In the United States, about half of all pregnancies are unintended. Of all unintended pregnancies, four in ten are aborted. Twenty-one percent of all pregnancies in the U.S. end in abortion not including natural miscarriages. That's 2011 numbers. 21%. 97% of abortions are not because of rape or incest, but because the life of the mother is threatened. They occur simply because the mother feels that the child would be inconvenient to her lifestyle. From a human viewpoint, we may have unplanned pregnancies. I don't want to sound too harsh or too judgmental here tonight, but I don't really appreciate it when people refer to their, one of their children as an accident. We didn't plan it. It just happened. There's no accidental pregnancies with God. No matter what the circumstance of the conception, God can bring good out of it. I don't recall her name right now, and somebody in the crowd can probably help me, but we've watched her DVD numerous times as she is a strong proponent against premarital sex. Our young people don't like watching it too much, but it is what it is. 
But she was a child of a rape victim. She never knew who her father was. And she's traveled around the world encouraging young people to abstain from premarital sex until they're married because her mother was raped. She could have been aborted, but buddy, she has made a huge impact on our society, helping junior high and high school kids. We even had our parents watch it, that video one time. They didn't like it either. Found out later why. Because some of them was being unfaithful outside of their marriage. And you have no idea who you're with, who they've been with. It's awfully quiet in here, and this ain't an all-running type Bible study. But when God said, thou shalt not kill, he knew what he was talking about. There was a pro-abortion, pro-abortion bumper sticker that said, one time every child is a wanted child. The fallacy of that is that God does want every child. Every one. There's no such thing as an unwanted child with God. If you're here tonight and your parents didn't want you, God does. Michelle testified Sunday publicly in Next. It's on our podcast if you want to go listen to it. She did an amazing job, and it's already had some very effective uh, consequences, if you will. It's touched the heart of somebody already. But uh, she said her dad didn't want her, wanted her name and her life off of him. But God does. I'm glad she accepted God's offer. These terminations of human life are justified by our self-centered, selfish culture, which sees a fetus as simply a blob of tissue. However, God alone reserves a right to decide when or what makes someone a human person. The Supreme Court ruled and took away the personhood of an entire class of Americans, as a matter of fact, world citizens in 1973, in the 1973 case of Norma McCorvey, better known by her alias as Jane Roe, Roe versus Wade. In doing so, they advanced the same four arguments. Preborns are human, but not persons. That makes a lot of sense to me. I just, that's just profound right there. But babies become legal persons only after they're born. Before then, babies have no legal rights. And a woman has the right to choose what to do with her own body, including the fetus. I'd like to ask a question tonight. Is the fetus her own body or is it its own body? Denying personhood to human beings was wrong in 73. Denying personhood to human beings is still wrong today. Why? Because it breaks God's sixth commandment by taking away someone's life. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that thou, my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret inside my mother's womb, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in count, uh, continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them, or I wasn't born yet. <clears throat> Before I go to my next point, <clears throat> I read an article today on my little smartphone app for Fox News. I don't know how many of you heard about it, but they're held, or the, the medical world right now is held, heralding the success of a child twice born. 
During pregnancy, a woman had all the testing done and found out that her baby inside of her had a tumor growing at the body, in its tailbone as a little girl. They took that baby out of the mother, operated on that baby, successfully put that baby back inside the mother. The mother carried that child for another 13 weeks, and it was born naturally. Let me ask the abortion people a question. Why did they take that baby out and operate if it's not a person? Why waste the money? If you, don't, if you want to read more about it, it's, it was on my Fox News pop-up thing today. Here's where I'm going with this. I think most of us, I hope all of us, are in agreement with what I've taught so far. I'm saddened that abortion has become a political issue. It's politics now. It's not life. It's politics. But all that being said, I want you to notice the screen. By now, you may think that the Sixth Commandment has absolutely nothing to do with your family. However, there's one last way God wants us to value the individual. And this one hits home. And it hits home in every home. God says no to abuse. You listen to pastor tonight, every person sitting in here, every young person. I'm so glad y'all are here tonight. I'm teetering on having y'all here next Wednesday night as well, but we'll see. Child abuse cases in America have seen a staggering rise of over 1,700% since the 1970s. Many abortionists claimed that the dramatic rise in abortions during the last 30 years would practically eliminate such abuse, but obviously they were mistaken. As well, the American divorce rate has increased more than five times in the same period, and more than hundreds now occurring every day. Our homes have become a battleground, and abuse is the weapon of choice in many families. Listen, everybody listen, 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 listen. Jesus taught, Jesus taught that there's very little difference between murder and gossip. There's very little difference between murder and verbal abuse because they all flow from the same source. They all come out of a heart of hate and they kill. There's more than one way to murder someone. Here's what Jesus said about commandment number six in Matthew chapter five, verse 21. He said, you have heard that it was said of them in old time, talking about the Old Testament, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. That's what the commandment says. But he said, I say unto you, Jesus said, I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And I'm going to explain what that means. Rekha is an Aramaic transliteration for a term expressing contempt, scorn, or disdain. The Greek word means empty, vain, a worthless one, signifying a lack of intellect, such as an imbecile or a blockhead, or an idiot, or calling someone stupid, etc. The Jews used it as a word of contempt. 
It is derived from a root word meaning to spit. It's being angry and spitting. When unresolved anger is present in a relationship, it will not rest. It will not rest until it has displayed itself in a hateful attitude that demeans the other person. Notice the screen. When murderers kill, they usurp God's right to measure man's days. But when abusers kill, they usurp God's right to measure a man's worth. I want that to marinate for a minute. John said in his epistle in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, Whosoever hates his brother, whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. One translation said, if you hate each other, you are murderers. And we know that murderers do not have eternal life. A Christian home should never exemplify this kind of behavior. So what happens when the inevitable conflicts come? There are some great pointers on how to fuss and fight with each other. I'm going to come to that in a minute. But before I do... I want everybody to set up straight and listen with both ears for a minute. <clears throat> I know tonight I'm not naive and stupid. I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. And I know that we have gossipers here at Grace Church. There's people that love their telephone. They love social media. And uh, they love to beat up the pastor. They love to beat up the pastor's wife the pastor's family, or the pastor's staff and family, and all of our church families. I want to send you out a fair warning based on the sixth commandment. That Jesus said, your tongue can cause as much damage as a sword. Your tongue can carry more destructive capability than a forty-five caliber pistol. And I want to say to some, I want to say to everybody here tonight, and God help me. I, I stand under the microscope first. God help me tonight as pastor. But I hope I can always keep in mind how valuable everyone at Grace Church is. And I want to say to everybody here tonight that as far as I'm concerned, and it's based off of my 30 years of, of ministerial experience, to destroy someone with your tongue is worse than destroying them with a gun, in my opinion, in a lot of ways. When you take someone's literal life, if they're right with God, then they go on to heaven. If they're not right with God, that's between them and God. They're in the hands of God. But when you destroy the life of a child with your tongue or with your hands, you destroy their spirit. This is what I work with. This is what I inherit as pastor. Most of my counseling, 90% of it, has to do with spirit damage, attitude damage at the hands of someone else.
I say sometimes, and and I, I realize tonight I have a very crude and harsh vernacular, and I do my best to communicate appropriately, but I do wish sometimes that people would just sometimes, just sometimes, just keep your dumb mouth shut. If you have anger issues with, towards somebody, you take it to God, man. If you get angry with your children, oh my. You're, you're to shape them. You're to mold them. They're made in the image of God. They're not your punching bag. They're not what you release your stress on and your anger and your issues, whatever they are. If you're angry about something, come talk to me. You bow up at me, I'll bow up back. way it is some of you know that (laughs) come talk to me about it go talk to a therapist about it don't take it out on your spouse don't take it out on your kids man these people are valuable in the sight of God I said it a a couple of Wednesday nights ago I had a conversation with brother Merrill in the office night before church and, and we was talking about ministry related things and you know when I I teach this material. Uh, Sister Sheila, when I teach this material, as soon as I'm done, the minute I close my notebook, and I start heading that way, and I go back in my office, and I put all my stuff up and get rid of the microphone so I can come back out here and just relax and talk to you and what have you. But as soon as I close my book, I'm like, Dear God, what did I say? Did I hurt somebody? Did I offend somebody? I throw it out there the best I can. So I'm going to say this tonight in the company of a good group of people here, a good crowd on Wednesday night. I don't know what kind of a man you have to be to hit your wife, to strike your wife. I don't know what kind of man you have to be to get up out of your bed at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and walk into your, dad, into your daughter's bedroom. But if you do that, it needs to stop. And it needs to stop now. And you need help. I'm so glad I have a platform for which to say this. Throwing out verbal abuse and cursing and swearing in your home. You may not be killing your family physically. But you're killing their spirit, man. You're taking the light out of your wife's eyes. And you can threaten, but if you're a man and... I don't know, I, 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 I reek with what our family calls Murphy, you know, whatever that means. Uh, I don't know, man, somebody hits me in the wrong kind of way, I'm going to try to embrace what Jesus said to turn the other cheek, but I can't promise you that's going to happen. If you're trying to abuse me in any way, I'm going to have a hard time rolling over, I can tell you that right now. And anybody that will put up with abuse, you need to deal with it, man. Get rid of the abuser. You might pay a price. But if it will protect your family, if it will protect your kids, you get rid of the abuser. And the lady folks can do the same thing. It may not be physical, but you can do it mentally, you can do it emotionally, and you can do it physically when it comes to sexuality. We may talk a little bit about that next Wednesday night. We'll see. The Bible commands us to love one another, man. And if you're angry, if you're angry at your boss, you don't come home and take that out on your family. Do you hear me? You don't even take it out on the dog or the cat or whatever other pet you've got in your house. If you have anger issues, 
you need to go talk to somebody and learn how to get rid of that stuff. Jesus said, thou shalt not kill. And that's right. But he took it to a whole nother level when he talked about people doing it with their mouth. I teach grounds for divorce is not only adultery, but it's also abuse. Because you're killing the spirit of the man. Jesus even talked about that. That you don't, you don't kill the spirit of a man. You, it, it's, it's worse than death to do that. So if these things are going on in your home, you need to seek counseling. If you can't stop it, you need to seek counseling. And men's that would, men that would be abusive to their wife or children, why don't you pick on somebody your own size? That's what I suggest. Line somebody up that's about the same age, same size, same weight. And treat them like you treat your family and see what happens. You may not come out so good. This is just pastor talking right now. But when Jesus said thou shalt not kill, it includes what comes out of your mouth. And if you gossip and you're a liar and all of those kind of things, you're worse than a a murderer, the Bible said. Stop it. All right. So how do you fight? When you're up to your neck with your spouse, just short of going out in the backyard to settle it, or getting a frying pan or the broom, what do you do? All of us have had those moments, have we not? Amen, Brother Murphy, we have. I'll say it for you. Scared to death to say anything. I love the story of the the wife who chased her husband under the bed with a broom beating him with a broom he just got under the bed she said you come out from under that bed right now he said I'm the man of the house I'll come out when I'm ready <laughs> so how do you fight I'm going to make another suggestion too I heard this story a number of years ago and it was proclaimed to be true that a man came home drunk all the time beat up his wife she got tired of it so one night he came home to drunken stupor he beat her and went and fell across the bed and went to sleep she got her needle and thread and sewed him up in the bed sheet real good and tight and took his fishing rod and went to work on that feller. It broke him of that habit. But that's not what I recommend. <clears throat> kind of, but not quite. <laughs> Thank the Lord. Y'all with me tonight? Is this okay? I, I'm doing my best. This is called fights. Everybody say Fights. I've kind of waited for, you know, sometimes I hear of husband and wife having a knockdown drag out on the way to church. And then when you come to church, our service leaders get up and say, give your neighbor a fist bump. This is a golden opportunity. Oh, I'm sorry, honey, I missed your fist, man. Just got you right in the chin. I'm not trying to give anybody an idea. <laughs> if that happens Sunday, you're not excused. I can say anyway. Let's look at the word fights. Let's make a, what is it, an acronym? Let's make an acronym out of it. Number one, the word F stands for face each other. Walking off or involving yourself in something else, leaving no room for discussion because you're absent, whatever. Don't forget Proverbs 15, verse 1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. There's one little rule I've always had in my house between Sister Murph and I and our kids. Nobody's hard of hearing. In our house, you don't have to shout to be heard. When you get emotional, the voice raises, and then you say something you regret. Keep your dumb mouth shut, cool off a little while, and 
go back and face the situation, but face each other. I is ignore distraction. Don't resort to chasing rabbits to throw your spouse off the subject and keep you from facing the facts. And we love to bring up the past, don't we? When we're confronted by our spouse or something like that about what we did, and we like to go back to 1902 when your great-grandmother was an infant four days old and won't tell some story about something that happened way back there. It's not relevant. Forget about it. It's not relevant. Anyway, we'll come a little bit more to that in a minute. But ignore distractions. The Bible said, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Swift to hear. Ladies, slow to speak. Sister Murph claims I have perfected that. I talk way too slow for her. I have a brother that even talks slower than I do, and it drives her insane. So I don't go around him. I want to keep her sane as long as I can anyway. But then uh, the Bible said, slow to wrath. When you get in a disagreement with your family, your spouse, your kids, when you start getting emotional, just stop it. Just keep your mouth shut. Or if they start getting emotional, you're going to get into an area where there's no room to back out. Remember that. G is guard your tongues. Personal attacks or name-calling begins. You know, it's, 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 it's humorous when it's over. It's never funny in the moment, but it's, it's kind of humorous sometimes, depending on the circumstance, of course, but when it's all over with. But at how low we will stoop to make our case known. And when we run out of facts and we run out of things in the past, then we start to name-calling. Well, I remember one time when you was an idiot. I remember one time when you did something stupid, stupid. And we, we, we do that. And, and I'm going to be very kind in my name calling. There's, I've heard people go far beyond that. But the Bible said in James chapter 3, and don't forget this, that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So that it is the tongue among our members and that it defiles the whole body and it sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. That's some pretty strong words about your tongue, man. So do your best to control it. H, when the word fights, is halt the history. And that's where we like to go the past. I remember what something said on your birth certificate. I mean, we, we go way back. We dig it up, man. And <laughs> where I'm bad, I don't have good memory with all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, you know, the past can always be used as leverage. I don't remember that. I don't remember. Did I do that? Yeah, okay, I guess, whatever. And, and I vow and declare, I remember one time Sister Murph was, and I were having a discussion about something that I supposedly did. And then, of course, my two kids had to chime in and say, yeah, Dad, you did it. And I'm like, thanks. I really appreciate it. And the next time you want to go somewhere and need gas money, go ask your mother. I got them involved in the fray. But, but you halt the history thing, man, and, you know, bringing up stuff from the past. And it's, it's funny how fast the brain works and the mouth works when you're in a fight with each other and what you can dig up, man. And, and you know, emotions are running hot and you're having this knockdown drag out and just short of throwing the frying pan. You know, people have broke some good stuff because they were mad, and that's just stupid. Punching a hole in the wall, do you realize that either you or someone else is going to have to fix that moron? Just think about it, you know, before you do it anyway. <clears throat> uh, but bringing up the past tells your spouse 
that nothing will ever change in y'all's relationship and that you've never forgiven the past. I'm glad Jesus don't bring up mine, ever, ever. Jesus said, don't judge others and God won't judge you. Don't be hard on others and God won't be hard on you. Forgive others and God will forgive you. This is the hard part right now. It's a letter T in the word fights that we're going through right now. It's touch. I heard there's a, a woman when we first came to Baton Rouge to, to pastor the church a uh, hundred years ago. There was a woman on the radio on WJBO. Her name was Joy Brown. She was a psychologist. And she was on another plan. I don't know Joy, but she gave some crazy advice or whatever. But one thing she said, and I'll never forget it. A lady called in and said, I can't get along with my husband. We have a fight all the time. You know, what do you recommend? So she went through some solutions or whatever. She said, what you need to do is sit down at the kitchen table and hold hands with your husband while y'all are arguing. And I'm like, right. That's going to happen. We might sit across the table, but we ain't going to be holding no hands. I can tell you that. But somehow this position, if you can do it, softens the heart. And it makes us a little more vulnerable and reasonable and caring. In Ephesians chapter 4, stop being bitter and angry and mad at others. Don't yell at one another or curse each other or ever be rude, says one translation. Instead, be kind and merciful and forgive others just as God forgave you. So, I started to call out somebody's name, you know, married couple here, but I'm not going to do that. Anyway, next time y'all have a fight, just try sitting at the table the kitchen table and hold each other's hand. Say, oh, I can't stand what you did to me last night, honey cakes. You make me sick. And do you think? Anyway, but hold hands and if you can do it, God bless you. I've never been successful. But then S fights at the end of the words is is stay in the room. If you can. Now, when you start saying stupid stuff and stuff you're going to regret, you need to cut it off. I've done this many, many times in my own house for myself and others in our house. That when it starts getting to that kind of a little higher pitch and you're getting a little emotional, whatever, I'm like, nope, all done. No, we're going to finish this right now. No, we're not. Calm down. I need to calm down. You need to calm down. Keep it on the low, low, the down low, whatever all that stuff means. But here's the point. When surgeons are operating on a person, they can't quit while there's an open wound. And that's the point. Or they invite infection. Do your best to finish the fight the same day. The Bible teaches don't let the sun go down on your wrath. I've worried about that when Sister Burf and I have had a little spout here and there from time to time. I remember she and I, when we first got married, and I love this story. I love this story. I'm not going to tell you the content of the argument, even though most of you have heard it, but I'm not going to say it tonight. But anyway, we was on, on the way to work. We rode together when we first got married. We got a big knockdown drag out about something, and I drug up something I shouldn't have. And I had my little lunch that she fixed that morning for me, a ham and cheese sandwich and some chips and whatever else that was in that bag, a little old brown lunch bag behind my seat and she dropped me off at my office she got out of the car walked around I stormed out of the car into the office and I was done with her the secretary in the office called me about 20 minutes later and she said can you come up to the front for a minute and I said yeah she says that's your lunch sitting out in the parking lot 
I love that story. Sister Murph saw my lunch. She had compassion. She was as mad as a hornet, but she still had compassion on me. She just picked it up and just dropped it right there in the parking lot and drove off. I love that story. Oh, my, I'm so glad she did. It would have been a long day with nothing to eat because I didn't have a car, and she had to go. But the Bible does teach to not let the sun go down on your wrath. Try to solve it before you go to bed. And you know, it would just be Murphy's Law that you, know, you, you go to bed mad and she dies during the night and you never had a chance to say, I'm sorry, I'd be my luck. You know, so you've got to try to get this straight. So, uh, but anyway, you get the point. Stay, stay as much as possible and resolve it as soon as possible. Do you feel like you've broken God's sixth commandment some way? If we don't value the individual in the way God says, we become murderers in his sight. But God forgives murderers when they repent. Yes, he does. In fact, most of the Bible was written by three men who were once murderers. Most of the Bible was written by three men who were once murderers. And that was Paul, David, and Moses. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive them. Amen. I'm glad that's over with. Aren't you? Amen. Stand with me tonight. I love our church. I'm trying to teach you the Word of God. And before you beat up your spouse too mad with your mouth and your friends and family, think about this Bible study and think about what you're doing to their spirit. Thank the Lord. Father, we're grateful tonight for the Word of God. We're so thankful for the Word of God. We pray tonight that it's hit its mark, that we may not use guns and swords But we do use actions and attitudes, and we certainly use words to hurt one another. And I pray, God, that we could be a reflection more of you when it comes to these times. We all have our human weaknesses, but it's no justification. You still call on us and require us to be more like you. I pray, God, tonight that you would bless Grace Church with a spirit of love and kindness, patience, forbearance. I pray, God, tonight that we'd be willing, always willing to forgive, to reconcile, and to restore. Bless tonight, I pray, and heal our hearts. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. All right, give somebody a fist bump, and God bless you. (laughs) You're dismissed.